Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 21. That's our passage today, Luke chapter 21. We're talking about Jesus, talking about the end of time. C.S. Lewis has penned our key concept for today. It goes like this. When the author steps on the stage, the play is over. I love that line. We're just days away from a new year. Once again, in the New Year celebrations, what we're celebrating really is the passing of time, the transition that time brings. And as we approach each year, we approach with the question, will this be the year of the return of the Lord? It might be. And with that in mind, I focus on the time when Jesus himself gave us a lesson about the end times. There's a lot of conversations about the end times, but we ought to pay special attention when Jesus himself teaches a lesson on that topic. It takes place in Luke chapter 21. It's also found in the Gospel of Mark, also in the Gospel of Matthew. And it takes place as the disciples and Jesus are on the Mount of Olives looking back across the Kidron Valley to the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is called oftentimes the Olivet Discourse when Jesus teaches in Luke 21. The scene is this. Jesus has left the temple and crossed the Kidron Valley to go to the Mount of Olives. It's during Holy Week. It's during the the preparation for the Passover. And in those days, what happened was the, the city of Jerusalem swelled in population well beyond what it could bear. And so it was the practice of pilgrims that came from Galilee to come down the, the, to, to Jerusalem and literally camp out on the Mount of Olives. That was the common practice. That's where they could stay. The city was full. Jesus was one of those Galilean pilgrims. And most likely what's happening is they leave the temple courts and go up to the Mount of Olives, Jesus is going back to where he's camped out for the, uh, for the week. And as they go, go make that little uh, journey, about a mile walk or so, one of the disciples makes reference to the wonder of the temple, the beauty of the temple that is visible across the valley. You see, when Herod the Great became king, of course, under Roman authority in 37 B.C., He wanted to find favor with the Jews to kind of, you know, make it so that they would get along together. And he decided to initiate a building project. And it was actually a rebuilding, a reconstruction project, uh, a a renewal of the second temple that had had been built by Zerubbabel and his team back in 536 or so B.C., 
under Herod, they started a uh, reconstruction project on a grand scale. And at this point in history, the temple has been under construction once again for 46 years. I don't know if any of you have ever had, you know, a, a, re, a re, redo project in your house, like a bathroom or a kitchen. How would you like to go 46 years under construction? 46 years the temple has been worked on, and, um, and much by Jesus' time has been accomplished. It's not completed by, yet, but much has been accomplished, and much of the exterior of the temple was in plated gold, so that it, when it sat on the Temple Mount, the, the, the thought was it almost looked like it was a mountain of gold as you crested the hill coming towards Jerusalem. And when the sun was shining off of that gold, the glare of that sun, it was said, made it hard to look at the temple itself. And so the disciples turn and they, they speak about this beautiful sight that is behind them. And we pick up their conversation in chapter 21, verse 5. It says this, Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, the disciples are making small talk here. It's, it's in the midst of Holy Week, and, and you know that Jesus is moving towards the cross. He has predicted that and shared that with them. And I think that in the spirit of the moment, they're kind of desperate to talk about something that's going to lift their spirits. What can we all agree on? Well, we can all agree on the fact that the temple is marvelous. Who can fail to be impressed by the temple, right? It's still under construction, but it looks great. And Jesus does not seem to be that impressed. From the vantage point of history, we know that the words of Jesus come literally true. The temple will be completed in A.D. 63, about 30 years or so from this statement, but it will last only seven years. In A.D. 70, the temple will be destroyed. The temple worship and the sacrificial system will come to an end. And that is what Jesus speaks about when he responds to the disciples' small talk. They want to be him to be impressed with the sight of the temple, and he says, all of this is going to end, and all of that is going to be knocked down. Jesus is telling them and us that we ought not to place too much of our feelings of security on human achievement. Whether it's a building or a bank account or a position of prestige, anything that's made by human hands is temporary. That temple looked impressive. It looked secure. It looked like it was going to last forever. It looked like as if, if there was trouble, we could always run into the temple courts, bar the gates, and we'll be protected but Jesus burst that bubble big time. That is not a secure protector. It will come down. The temple has been destroyed before. It will be destroyed again. And to the disciples who are just trying to lighten the mood, this seems unimaginable. You know, I can't imagine that this huge grand structure will fall. But the unimaginable will happen. 
It's kind of like what occurred in Dallas, a Dallas suburb on September 10th, 2001. A fifth grader came to his teacher named uh, Rhonda Lusich, and he said to Rhonda Lusich, World War III is going to start in America tomorrow. Rhonda was like, where is this kid getting this? She laughed it off as a joke. What does this kid know, right? But when she woke up the next day, 9-11, she saw the reports of the Twin Towers coming down. She saw the, the reports of the attack on the Pentagon. And she remembered this comment of this fifth grader yesterday. The report says that she called that fifth grader in to the FBI and had the FBI investigate the fifth grader, wonder what's going on. And the rest of the story isn't known, but the temptation of the disciples is to laugh off the prediction that Jesus is making, just like that fifth grader was laughed off. But this is no fifth grader. This is Jesus, and he knows what's coming. By A.D. 70, the Romans had grown weary of the constant rebellion of the Jews, and Jerusalem was invaded it was mostly destroyed, not all. A shell of a city was left, but the temple was flattened. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about as he responds to his disciples. Now, what would you do? Put yourself in their shoes. What would be the next thing you would say if you heard Jesus give that prediction? Wouldn't you say, when is this going to happen? How will we know? Pick up the reading in verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will all these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before the kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them, but make up your mind not to worry before him how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies, you will know that its desolation is near. We see from Jesus' reply that he's not willing to give them dates. He's not willing to give them times of these events, but he is willing to give them signs. And he says, as you see these signs occur, you will know that God's timetable is moving forward. And here are the signs. Sign number one, there will be false teachers who will claim to be the Messiah, but don't be misled. Verse 8, watch out you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Jesus is the one true Messiah, but those 
Before and after him, there were those who made false claims to be the Messiah. Both individuals and groups set themselves up to be the only way. We're the ones who have the answer. We have the truth. As Jesus was saying these very words, down in the Jordan River Valley, the Essenes had established an encampment secluding themselves, saying, we are the only ones who know the true way. After Jesus' life, Simon Bar Kokhba was hailed as the Messiah, and he was the kind of Messiah that the Jews were looking for. He led a military revolt against Rome. This is after 70 AD, and it was in that, in that revolt that the Romans finally completely leveled the city. They, they threw out, expelled all of the Jews under em, em, Emperor Hadrian. They turned it into a Roman city, and no Jew lived there until the 20th century. Jesus says, there will be those who will pretend to be me. Don't get fooled. He says, there will be frequent wars, but don't get terrified. Our world has known very little periods of peace, if at all, over the course of history. Right now, war is is raging. But back in Jesus' day, we think of the Roman Empire in the first century, and oftentimes we think of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was a time of peace, wasn't it? Well, it was a step up from barbarity, but it was not peace. Tacitus was a Roman senator, and he spoke this way about his own people. He said, they plunder, they slaughter, they steal. This they falsely call empire. And where they make wasteland, they call it peace. Jesus knew that the violence would continue, and it would be a sign of God's moving forward to the end of temple worship and the temple itself. He says there will be fierce national, uh, excuse me, natural disasters, but don't lose heart. In the time span between uh, Christ's death and 70 AD, there were earthquakes, one of them so terrible that it leveled the biblical cities of Laodicea and Colossae. Laodicea has been rebuilt or had been in the first century, but if you go to Colossae still today, it's just a mound of earth. They never rebuilt the city. During those period, those years, eclipses of the sun occurred. The Hellbop comet appeared in the sky for the very first time. These were terrifying events for first century people. And a little bit after the destruction of Jerusalem, Vesuvius erupted in AD 79, buried Pompeii, and caused famine in Rome. These things are signs that God's program is working, going forward. He says there will be flagrant persecution, but don't give up. Verse 12, before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues. The first persecutors of the brand new church were Jews, remember, and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. From Jesus' statement of these words into 70 AD, the destruction of of the temple in Jerusalem, This was the period of the rapid growth of the church in the New Testament. This was the moment when the gospel went out into all the Roman Empire, but consistently all along the way they faced persecution, at first from the Jewish leaders and later from Rome itself. Don't see these persecutions as a threat, he says. See them as opportunities to witness. Speak the words that I will give you. Don't worry about it beforehand because I will inspire you what to say. And all throughout the book of Acts, this prediction comes true. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are, are hauled before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. 
The persecutor himself, Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter 9, comes to faith, but he himself is imprisoned over and over again in his on trial before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And there are martyrs along the way. Some will suffer, some will die. And why will that happen? Jesus explains it in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Don't give up. Don't be blown away by all of this. Keep on. Finish well, because all of this means the timetable is moving forward. But then Jesus says, there is an 11th hour sign. There is a sign just before the end of temple worship and the temple itself. And he shows us that in verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. That's the 11th hour sign. Roman armies encircling the city. That's the moment when you flee, for there is no hope after that. Destruction is sure. And Jesus is simply describing the method of conquest used by General Titus of the Roman Empire. And if you go to Rome today and you visit that city and you go down to the ancient portion, you can visit Titus's arch where inscribed on that arch in, his, uh, in the commemoration of this victory are the pictures of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. Jesus foresaw it all. It's all coming it's all happening. And then he says something a little odd. Verse 24. He says, They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there in verse 24 is introduced a new wrinkle, a new thought. The time of the Gentiles. What is the time of the Gentiles? When did it begin and what does it mean? I believe the time of the Gentiles began at the tearing of the temple curtain when Jesus was on the cross. When God himself tore open that temple curtain before the Holy of Holies, indicating entrance to the presence of God, symbolized by the Holy of Holies, now is open to all. It's the time, now is the time of the Gentiles. The gospel message is turning toward the Gentile world. Paul refers to that in Romans chapter 11. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. The time of the Gentiles is the period of time when the focus of God's gospel will be to the Gentile world, where the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, are grafted into the people by faith. Paul in his passage is saying, I'm confident that the hardening of the heart of the Jews will eventually end. There will be a returning to the one true Messiah, and both the believing Jew and the believing Gentile, who are true Israel, will be saved. All of that is coming. What's interesting is Jesus is saying all of this in answer to the disciples' question, when will the, the, the temple be destroyed? So the question for us is, is Jesus just talking about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD, or is there more to the story? 
Why is it that many of your Bibles that you can look at right now, if they include paragraph headings, include a heading like something to the degree of Jesus talks about the end of the the age or Jesus talks about his return? It doesn't sound like he's talking about that. It sounds like he's still talking about just the events of 70 A.D. I want you to understand, first of all, backtrack for a moment, those headings are not part of the inspired text. Those headings are an editor who puts that in just to help you read the Bible. Some of your Bibles don't have them at all. You're not missing out. That's, not, that's just an, an addition, okay? But what we see happening is this. Jesus is making a transition in verse 24 into verse 25. And he's transitioning from, only, uh, from talking mainly about what's going to happen in 70 AD at the end of temple worship to what's going to happen at the end of time. It's almost as if his gaze is lifted as he enters verse 25, and he talks about the beyond times. So look at, look at verse 25. It says, these will be signs, and there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Through verses 1 through 24, Jesus gives the signs that are coming in the temple destruction. However, those signs have a double fulfillment. Those signs continue into the next age he's talking about from 25 onward as well. Because we still experience false teachers that lead people astray, don't we? We still experience wars. We still experience natural disasters. Believers still experience persecution for standing up for the faith. All of these things, as they continue, simply means God's timetable is moving onward. But Jesus says, just like there was an 11th hour sign for Jerusalem, the encircling of the armies, so there's an 11th hour sign for the end of the age. It's coming. And the end of the age will show us that the age of the Gentiles is coming closed as well. Up until this point, we've read about natural disasters. But when Jesus describes what's coming at the very end of time, it's almost as if the natural disasters are unnatural, the kind of behavior that we've never seen in nature before, a new kind of intensity so that people will panic as they view what's going on. Both Matthew and Mark stress that that there will be calamitous events in the heavens that people will see. Luke stresses the violence of the sea and the perplexity of people, all of them making the point that there's going to be things that occur around us in nature that we've never seen before. Now, what are we to make of these predictions? Some people look at these words of Jesus and they say, well, all he's doing is giving us figurative language, telling us that some really bad things are going to happen before the end. And maybe that's true. But up until this point, it seems to me that Jesus has been pretty specific in his commentary. So I think he's telling us something specific. 
And I think we can summarize it this way. He's telling us a violent change in the natural order to the point where people will notice, all the people will notice, and because of the change in the natural order, there will be widespread despair and panic. And just when it seems that everything is at its worst, the hero will arrive. Verse 21. Excuse me, verse 27, sorry. (laughs) At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's the end of time, his second coming. The Apostle John describes it in Revelation saying this, look, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And the next verse is the words of Jesus himself as he comes. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We just came through the Christmas season, and we noted that when Christ came at Christmas, he came quietly. He came humbly. He came unnoticed by most people. But Jesus tells us, the next time I come, it's going to be totally different. My coming will be unmistakable. He comes with power and glory, not in a manger, but but not riding a donkey, but riding a cloud. And he comes not to die, but to live and to reign. And Jesus then in verses 29 and 30 gives a brief illustration about how you can see that seasons are changing when you see the fig tree changing. And he's saying that seasons are changing. God is moving all things towards this end. And then he says something that has confused people down through the generations in verse 32. He says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, many people have read that verse, the voice of Jesus, and they've said, see, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. He was wrong here. That generation passed away, and multiple generations passed away since these words. He, he thought it was going to happen right away, but it wasn't. And that is to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that you people will be here to see this, talking to his disciples. He's saying, he's giving here a statement about the speed of the events. He's saying the generation that sees these end time events begin will see its culmination. It will happen within this generation that sees it occur. And my point simply is, it could be our generation. So what should we do knowing this? Verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. What does he mean by you may be able to escape? He doesn't mean that you'd be able to get out of this. This is going to happen. No one will get out of it. He means escape the utter ruin of those who are the enemies of Christ when this happens. These events bring about the end of time, ultimately judgment day. So he's saying live in such a way leading up to these events that you escape the consequences of being on the wrong side because it's happening. And this is always the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is always the present. How should we live in light of what the prophet is saying? Jesus reveals the plan and he's saying us, this is how you should live. Do not get caught up in the things who are not followers, those who are not followers of Jesus get caught up in. 
You have to be different. It means until this time, watch. Be in an active state of awareness. Realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, you live, work, and play behind enemy lines. Know that this world is not your destination, as, at least as not as it is now. Everything will be changed. Prepare. History will one day come to an end and time will be no more. And all of life is moving towards this end. Pray that you bear up well. Pray that you are those who do not get misled, not terrified, that you do not lose heart. And remember the words of verse 28 as you move through time. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank, we thank you that you have all things in hand. We are constantly concerned about the passing of time, the coming of the future. We have those who predict and those who draw charts and those who set times and seasons. But Lord, we know that all of that is the wrong reaction. The right reaction is to be humble before you, to be ready to receive you and to serve you well in the meantime. And even so, as we enter this new year of 2020, we say, Lord, come. We want to see you face to face. And if this is the year, we rejoice in meeting you. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing as the team leads us in a closing song? As we look forward to 2020, may we be found giving praise to our God. I sing praises to your name. I sing praises to
In just a moment, we're going to leave this place, and it may be that you're here in need of prayer. There's a concern for your life, a question, or just the need to come to know the Savior who we're talking about, who was soon returning. If that's you, you can slip forward and meet with the prayer counselor by the organ next to the table. They will be happy to pray, and they will wait for you. But first, let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you govern the transition of time. And you are outside of time, seeing all things all the time. So, Lord, we can trust you to work all things together for good. We pray that we would have that confidence as we leave this place. And as we enter this new year, we pray that we would entrust it to you and seek to serve you in all that we do and all that we say. May you receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.